often it seems to me I feel like there's uh, so much to say, so many uh, angles of exploration, angles uh, of perspectives, or avenues to open up directions to uh, explore, uh, make available uh, dimensions and openings, aspects, pieces of uh, a jigsaw, pieces of a larger picture that feel to me, seem to me to be potentially at least quite significant, um, that they might be very helpful for different people at different stages in their own explorations and considerations. Um, and there seems to me, as I said, some, often to be so much to try and communicate with all, all that, that um, I find myself hurrying through uh, pieces that I uh, would do better not to hurry through. Um, and I think sometimes listening to new material, or listening, especially when something is communicated in, in a hurried way because I'm trying to get on to the next thing, um, uh, it's not easy for the listener or for someone um, hearing all that to actually discern what might be significant. So something might be a, a really potentially significant opening or avenue of exploration or piece to consider and uh, b because of this hurrying or just because it's new um, it's not always obvious what's significant it's not always obvious where something that is presented fits in a kind of <clears throat> hierarchy of significance of important ideas of potential openings etc so I apologize um, for that um, tendency I have sometimes um, but I'd like to kind of redress it a little bit and take a bit more time to explain something that we talked about the other day and to explore it more and actually really to invite you to explore it in some way. Uh, so we were talking about Eros, uh, Eros for the path, Eros for awakening, for, if you like, the goal, if you like the, um, so what is it to have an erotic relationship with the, the path and with that movement, if you like, towards awakening? What, uh, to me, you know, what's involved in that? What does it mean uh, to have an erotic relationship? Uh, are we, are you in love with the path? Are you in love with practicing? Is there a sense of beauty, beauty is there, is there a sense of the richness of dimensionality of the path itself uh, and of yourself on the path, uh, is there a sense, is there enough of a sense of a beyond, a more, a more to discover, a more to open to, a more to realize um, that allows the eros there. And is there enough richness and authenticity and power and fertility uh, to the fantasies and images of the path and awakening, in the sense of a kind of other there, the path and awakening, also of the self uh, and also of the eros? Uh, 
we always said these 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 fantasies uh, of other self and eros, in this case of path and awakening, self and eros, will constellate together. Uh, they will be pieces of a uh, of a larger imaginal constellation where there is eros, where where we love, where something is deeply alive for us in that way. And also wrapped up in that um, is, uh, and often with fantasies, is some relationship with past uh, and future, um, in this case with the tradition. What's the relationship of the, p- the path as I, as I sense it, as I, visual, as I vision it, um, path and awakening, myself on that path? The, what are the images of all this? The image of my love, the image of my desire on the path my love for the path, and the image of the tradition that, if you like, that uh, goes with that path or, or that gives, hands us the path. So all these aspects uh, will be involved in uh, a, a really fertilely uh, ri- uh, rich erotic relationship with the path and, and with the, the movement towards awakening. And it's particularly this aspect of uh, the fantasy and image of, of path and awakening, of self and of the desire and of the traditions, particularly the fantasies of the path uh, that I want to explain a little bit more about and explore with you and invite you to explore, as I said. So most of us... Uh, for most of us, the usual presentation of the teachings and of the path, and this doesn't go just for a, a Buddhist context, but the usual presentation in a lot of spiritual contexts, not all, but a lot, um, is, 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 is the usual presentation is as a, a movement to end, or at least reduce, suffering. Uh, and with that, to replicate uh if not the Buddha's awakening, at least uh, some of the uh, Sangha of old, the uh, enlightened ones, uh, the Arahants, etc., of the past. So one's essentially discover, rediscovering for oneself or, or following the instructions of um, what some sage or mystic in the past discovered for themselves and offered teachings and a map, etc., and one is essentially seeking to kind of replicate that awakening. So the awakening is something that's um, reconstituted, if you like, or, or sought, sought from the past, from, from what was given to us, the past, someone else's awakening, if you like, that we're um, reconstituting. And uh, that that's not necessarily uh, only Buddhist, so we could be in... Um, all kinds of paths trying to, um, uh, in a sense, on a path trying to reconstitute the kind of awakening that we get the sense that, for instance, Ramana Maharshi seemed to have discovered, or Nisargadatta Maharaj, or, or um, Krishnamurti, or, um, or it might be um, uh, put in, in a, a secular uh, Buddhist context. Um, uh, so it might be Advaita, Indian, this or that, or whatever, Buddhist, uh, traditional Buddhist, secular Buddhist has also just got a certain vision, a certain idea of what it means to end suffering, and a certain um, movement to replicate the Buddha's awakening. 
And even um, if it's just something, if our path is just about mindfulness, and we're kind of seeing that as somehow the way to end or reduce suffering, and we're replicating that way from uh, whatever we conceive of, of the tradition there, whether it's Buddhist or not. Now usually, so that there's the, e- the ending or reducing of suffering and the replication of someone else's past awakening or something close to that to which they seem to be pointing and trying to articulate in language or in their being. Um, but usually, uh, those uh, aspects there of, of the presentation are not recognized as fantasy. They're just presented, this is... This is uh, what we're doing. It's often not quite stated so boldly that we're trying to replicate something, but that's that's the the two principal thrusts. Um, I'll come back to the, the fancy aspect of those, but um, but that's the usual presentation that most of us, whether you're in the Gaia House tradition or the Insight Meditation tradition or the Buddhist tradition or the Neo-Advaita or whatever else, uh, else it is, um, Forgotten the names, but um, yeah, it, it's it's a, a similar kind of presentation, a similar kind of, of fantasy of the path, double fantasy of the path. There, and these two, um, when when we talked about this before, and I sort of felt like I hurried through it and wasn't so clear. These two um, uh, strands of that of that presentation, we could say one one strand is what we might call the medical patient fantasy. I was calling it the medical model. Let's call it the medical patient fantasy. So in the Buddha's time, the physicians, the um, doctors of his day would present uh, their uh, medical sort of assessment in in a kind of formula, um, diagnosis of what whatever what is this disease? What has the patient got? Um, what is the cause of this disease? Why do they have this disease? Um, possible prognosis um, if the uh, the full course of medication is taken, and then the medication, the prescription, and uh, the main prescription, and what else is involved. So. Uh, that's actually, if you can hear it already, that's all. That's the presentation of the Four Noble Truths. They're given, uh, they're modelled on a medical formula, and so we, so to speak, are to follow the doctor Buddha's, the physician Buddha's orders. There it says, what's the diagnosis? There is suffering. Um, what's the cause? It's well, the patient is craving, and uh, because they are, they have avijja. Um, so let's say craving and avijja, what we were calling clinging. Um, the prognosis: if the patient will take the full course of medication, meditation, and uh, and surrounding activities, um, they 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 can uh, see a complete cure. They can realize a complete cure of this disease. Um, the end of suffering. And uh, the prescription for that is the Eightfold Path. So we follow the, uh, as patients, as good patients, we, we, the Buddha has diagnosed us and um, given us a prescription, a possible prognosis and all of that. And we're, we're to follow the Buddha's orders there. And if we do so, um, we can end suffering or um, at least reduce it to the extent that we really 
are able to take fully on board his uh, recommended prescriptions. Now, why am I calling that a fantasy? Um, I'm rather drawing attention to there are fantasy elements inextricably woven up with that, as there are with, uh, actually, all perception, or most perception, um, or a lot of our perceptions, certainly when we're involved with something, when we love something. Partly, uh, this is fantasy because it gets enriched through the eros and through all kinds of um, uh, ways that it's filled out and becomes meaningful and beautiful to us and that we really care about it. Um, Partly, also, it's fantasy because, um, and as I've uh, addressed in a few talks um, in the past, what does suffering mean? So it sounds like just an obvious, um, obvious thing that we're all talking about the same thing. But what actually do we mean by dukkha? The Buddhist word for suffering, uh, that's usually translated as suffering. Um, and and what, uh, what does freedom from suffering mean? Uh, so we could have a vision of um, the path as just coping with a lot of the sort of more obvious difficulties, stresses and strains and unpredictabilities and fragilities of our life. And something like mindfulness, continuous uh, mindfulness, um, allows us to meet again and again and again and just keep meeting the sort of incessant stream of... um, the next thing that life throws at us and kind of cope with it by meeting it in this way that reduces suffering. So there's, there's a kind of minimal, if you like, uh, sense of what um, suffering is and what freedom from suffering is possible. Um, uh, what, what those two, uh, the first and the third truths, are really referring to. And one, well, the one minimal way is a kind of coping through mindfulness is actually extracting uh, more just one uh, term of the Eightfold Path, but it's also kind of kind of acknowledging that some dimensions of existence are just really hard. This is our existential situation. Um, it's brutal. It's uh, uh, meaningless, etc. And there's a kind of, we can do our best to sort of bear up to that um, and cope with it by meeting it without too much demand or expectation, by going with the flow, by bringing to a bare attention or mindfulness and not superimposing religious ideas or all that kind of thing, or hopes. That's one kind of fantasy that's already, you can hear, is wrapped up in that. Um, another way is just around the whole healing paradigm. And so a healing of body, of energy system, of, of our psyche, a kind of psychotherapeutic meditation, healing the wounds of the past, healing the ways our personality has got twisted um, from events or situations or just um, pressures, uh, long-term pressures of uh, the, the family or whatever it is, history in the past. And and so the the fantasy that's now quite a rich fantasy in the culture, the kind of psychotherapeutic or 
typical psychotherapeutic fantasy, um, of which there are actually many, but um, that the path becomes really about that. And then in that in that kind of picture, what does suffering mean? What does it really refer to? And what's freedom from suffering? What does it look like? And what tone does it have? Um, Etc. And even somewhere like Gaia House, um, if you listen to enough teachers over the years, you really get the sense that what people are talking about or pointing to or holding up as a possibility or the only possibility or uh, of a goal for practice is really quite divergent of what suffering means and what freedom from suffering um, means and looks like and what its range is. So that there's actually a huge range in in the interpretation or the presentation of that range, of that third noble truth, but by implication of the first noble truth as well. And so there's te- teachers at Guy House who, and elsewhere who say, I do not suffer. I do not suffer. Um, and, uh, the, you know, and, and the other, quite the other end as, as well. So, and I've said in, in the past, you know, in a way, the Four Noble Truths, this teaching about suffering and freedom from suffering, is more like a skeleton. It's more like, um, to borrow the Buddha's image, uh, of fleshless bones. Um, to borrow the Buddha's image from another um, in relation to senses that we talked about, the Four Noble Truths are like fleshless bones in a way. What do they mean for us? What do we make them mean? We need to flesh them out. Um, we share vocabulary, but it's just like a skeleton. And within that shared vocabulary, of course, it can sound like we're all talking about the same thing, but there's. Um, it might be that for the most part, all we have in common is, is that vocabulary and the kind of reference of uh, belonging to a certain tradition. But that fleshing out, that filling up of the skeleton happens, how? With uh, psyche and logos, with image and fantasy and with ideation, with concept. What what are we referring to? How does it work? How does it look like? What does an awakened person do? What, what do they look like? How are we on this path? Where are we moving to? What's it gonna be like? What is it like now? What are the pressing issues that I feel uh, are, are to be faced, to be open to, to be explored now? So there's this medical patient fantasy, uh, as we said, um, that's, that's part of the usual presentation. And there's also, I would say, a religious fantasy wrapped up in the usual presentation as well. Again, whether it's Buddhist, whether it's uh, some other spiritual tradition, um, I'm trying to remember a name, I just can't remember. The Power of Now guy. Sorry, can't remember, but anyway. Um, It's still presented that way. Freedom from suffering, and you're... Replicating something that he or she is pointing to in different ways, usually in a certain style of lang- linguistic communication. Uh, and the styles can differ hugely um, as much as the fantasy of what it looks like and what it involves. Um, but the, the, why I'm calling it religious is because what's 
one of the things we could say, or one way we could use that word religious, is in in the sense of religio. Uh, ligio is from the Latin, like ligament or legislation, or that comes something that binds. So it's binding us, re again, to rebind us to something. In other words, to bind us to something from the past. Um, whether you accept that um, etymology or not is is kind of irrelevant, but there is something about religions, uh, as far as I can see, for the most part, in that they place their authority in the past. The authority is in the past. Um, we've touched on this a little bit on this retreat, and I've certainly touched on it in, in, in other retreats. Um, uh, so, you can hear that in replicating the Buddha or... Um, whoever it is, Nisargadatta or Ramana Maharshi or Krishnamurti, and replicating that kind of, the sense that we get of what of the awakening that they're trying to communicate and, and are somehow trying to replicate it, even if we're not thinking in terms of replication, um, that that's actually uh, what's happening there. That uh, kind of movement of replication and, and the authority in the past even if this person is still alive, um, it's their past awakening that we're referring to. They say, "Well, on such and such day, or whenever um, this happened, and now and now I'm like this," um, and we say, "Wow, that's amazing," and um, and we try and replicate that. So I'm placing the burden of the meaning of the word religious in religious fantasy for now, not necessarily um, with respect to the subject matter, but with respect to this kind of fantasy of having the authority in the past. So some people say, no, religious has to do with believing in some kind of metaphysical metaphysics or metaphysical beyond or transcendent or believe in life after death or you believe in God or divinity or that kind of thing. Um, yep, you could say something like that if you want. I think just for now, you know, uh, with the flexibility of how we're using words, what I want to point to is this, is not so much that, but uh, the fantasy about the style, the style of fantasizing self on the path. That's what I'm talking about in these four kind of fantasies that I'm going to... Um, that I've offered already, and I'm going to just elaborating a bit more. The fantasies of, of uh, or the style of fantasizing the self and the path, and the self on the path. So there's something, as I said, replicatory here, with the authority in the past. Um, now, it may, uh, this, this, the path may, or our vision of the path may involve a kind of felt promise of um, this uh, more um, or beyond uh, which we can discover um, uh, regarding uh, how we perceive self, other, and the world. In other words, the perception of things, our, our sense of the path might include this promise of uh, something beyond what I already know. Uh, it could be just a little bit beyond, not that different. It could be something massively beyond, radically different, opening up in, in the perception there of self, other, world. Um, and it could be that that sense of what's radically different gives is an obviously 
quote religious difference in in the uh, way some people use that word um, but uh, but that actually could be present that beyondness um, could be present in any of these uh, um, uh, any of these four fantasies and it could also have the kind of religious flavor of beyondness or transcendence or etc that's opened up in the perception but that's not the key thing I'm pointing to because it could be in any of these four but as I said the two sort of interwoven strands of fantasy in the usual presentation of the path or the usual way that most people tend to uh, consciously or or for the most part consciously um, fantasize their path is uh, the the other medical patient fantasy and what I'm calling the religious fantasy. And compare that, or either of those, or both of those, with what I was calling a third possibility, I've changed the order here by the way, um, but let's call it now the third possibility, of the scientific researcher fantasy. In contrast to putting the authority in the past, um, science also looks to the future and anticipates um, by its very, uh, in its very assumptions and in its very project, anticipates making new discoveries in the future that it does not know today and that were not known in the past. So yes, it uses the past, but it's quite prepared to make radical breaks with the past and throw out anything from the past that no longer works or no longer uh, it is either proved wrong or just doesn't serve as a sort of uh, the most uh, to, to as part of the most coherent and economical framework or helpful framework for understanding things. But science, in contrast to the religious fantasy that looks to the past, so to speak, um, in, in, in its authority, the science looks also, or let's say predominantly, to the future. So there's this meaning, and I think I gave this example um, a few years ago on a talk. Um, let's take the, the scientific study of gravity. And um, we had uh, Galileo and Copernicus, um, making initial, uh, you know, at the time of the scientific revolution, really at the forefront there, and um, making initial observations and hypotheses about the movement of planets and about, uh, uh, and separately, about gravity with Galileo. And and then along came Newton and sort of synthesized, uh, if you like, Copernicus and Galileo with a theory of gravity. And it was related to the whole new physics that was emerging and the whole new scientific method. And rested on certain assumptions about scientific method, about reality, about all kinds of things, wrapped up in in that theory. He drew on Copernicus, he drew on Galileo, and he drew on a lot of other people as well, but that, that both the, the scientific methodology and the ideas about planetary motion and gravity. And then a few hundred years later, along comes Albert Einstein, and in, in effect... Um, to a certain extent, demolished Newtonian ideas of um, motion 
and uh, in space and time. And also later, uh, some years later, Einstein uh, did the same with the Newtonian theory of gravity and replaced them with a whole other theory of gravity that was really quite different in really fundamental respects um, uh, uh, regarding assuming what was real and the whole structure of the theory um, and what its implications were, etc. And nowadays, uh, what's kind of at the e- the cutting edge of research in modern physics is trying to is having realized that Einstein's general theory of relativity, which is a very successful theory, very beautiful theory, doesn't actually work well with the other main theory of modern physics, uh, quantum theory, the theory of um, that the. Uh, applies to subatomic particles or is used in application to subatomic particles, better way of putting it. So in trying to synthesize these two various um, theories proposed, none has been anywhere near proved yet, but for instance there's qu- something called quantum loop gravity and superstring theory, etc. Um, if if a scientist would were to say, so I'm a scientist, and they say, oh yeah, what, what are you doing? What's your you know, what's your ideas, what's your research, etc. And, and he said, I, I believe that Copernicus was right. Uh, and I'm only interested in Copernicus. And anything beyond Copernicus is, is a, is a um, pollution of the tradition. It's not proper science. It's, um, it's a devolution, etc. Um, this would strike us as, well, mm, I'm not sure about this person, uh, it sounds a little silly. I'm not sure about this person's um, scientific standing and authority and how they're thinking about things. It's only the religious fantasy that um, puts all the emphasis on the past like that. So you get this kind of what the Buddha said, and someone was just telling me the, the other day, uh, this teacher said, oh, this is where Buddhism went wrong. Uh, this is where Buddhism lost its way in its... In its uh, going on about the unfabricated. This is came after the Buddha. It was put in by Vedanta people and um, and the jhana, the formless jhanas and all the rest of it. And it's like, how strange. Uh, what 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 is going on there to to have this insistence on what the Buddha said as being the ultimate authority? What's going on there? It's a religious fantasy. A person might be absolutely committed to secularism in the sense of uh, they find exactly that, the idea of an unfabricated or a transcendent, abhorrent etc. like that, but still there's a religious fantasy there's a religious secularism there or secular religiosity or whatever Um, am I aware of the fantasies? how come I've just decided that the Buddha is the ultimate authority? can I not see that there's, there's there must be a fantasy going on there. And a person might admit, even within that fantasy, yes, well, he was, okay, he was a little bit conditioned um, in, in certain views by his time and, and the limitations of the Indian worldview at that time, uh, perhaps around his political uh, views, and didn't seem to, uh, could be wrong here, but it didn't seem to... Um, speak up much against slavery or against the practice of owning slaves or uh, his attitude towards ordaining nuns seems you know a little dubious um, etc but still apart from that uh, those kind of 
slightly minor details. He is the fundamental authority, and we are trying to replicate something. We're trying to find what he really said, assume he's the ultimate authority, and somehow replicate that. The scientific researcher uh, is does rely on the past, but uses the past, but may jettison or uh, uh, shatter um, models of truth from the past, assumptions um, about reality, uh, directions of investigation, all kinds of things, as we said with Einstein and Newton. And I think I mentioned this the other day, that the scientific um, researcher fantasy, it may be an open-ended fantasy. And if you talk to some scientists, some people say, some of the scientists would say, we'll never fully understand everything everything about the universe completely. There's nothing more to understand. Um, it's open-ended in that sense. Um, or it may not. And you talk to other scientists and, and they actually think, we're going to, there will be a time when we've pretty much figured everything out. Uh, slightly comically, um, uh, I've forgotten the name, there was an English physicist uh, who said exactly those words just a few years before both the quantum revolution and the revolution of Einstein's uh, theories of relativity, uh, which threw everything into uh, disarray and just showed how much more how, uh, there was to understand, etc. Um, but there is, as I said, whether it's open-ended or not in the in the fantasy, there is this um, openness and uh, interest in the new and intentionality towards discovering uh, new new discoveries. Um, the emphasis is towards new discoveries um, in in research science. Okay, and again, relating that to what that means in terms of, let's say. Buddhism or, or whatever. Um, this is not so much um, the newness here is not so much presenting old teachings in slightly adapted ways to new groups uh, of the population, new demographics or whatever. Um, but really, uh, the possibility here is of, of of really different understandings, really different insights. Um, so I, I remember when I first used this idea of the researcher fantasy, I just tossed it out a little playfully um, when I was um, talking about the beauty of desire in, in the talk part two. And um, partly what was so interesting to me about that and so sort of um, striking there in, in the material in, in that talk was this shouldn't happen. What happened to what I felt like I discovered, I'm not saying other people hadn't discovered it, but for me, I had not seen it before. Um, I don't know if other people had discovered it or not, but um, this shouldn't happen. According to the teachings of, uh, as I understand them, of the, of the, uh, of the, the Buddha and, Buddha and the Pali Canon, that, that shouldn't happen. Desire, wanting, unless it's very specific, uh, um, uh, you know, in certain specific directions, basically brings suffering. And and if you find that it actually no, uh, you can go deeper into that desire and hold it in a certain way, as we're gonna we're gonna talk about in this retreat too. And it and it actually um, does not bring suffering. It actually brings joy and fullness and abundance and all that. Uh, 
abundance of being. Um, well, that shouldn't happen. So that's really interesting. That's like um, uh, Max Planck at the start of the quantum revolution presenting his findings in the laboratory, and he really didn't want to present them because he knew this. Well, this is this contradicts everything that we think about radiation black body radiation and how how radiation is emitted by hot bodies is that I don't want to share this there's something is really up here um, but so that to me is is and he did he did anyway th- thankfully um, but he felt very ambivalent about that he knew something was up so this this is really what I'm talking about by the research it's like, it's like things that don't fit think areas that don't fit directions insights openings that actually move into new new territory new insights etc and again um in terms of comparing these different fantasies that we're sort of outline outlining here um one may be a researcher into mystical states, for example. One may be a researcher into insights and approaches that are uh, some people would deem religious or spiritual or whatever. But the fantasy of the movement, the fantasy of the self's um, way of engaging, how it sees itself, how it images itself in that movement, in relation to a path and the path that it's on, is one of uh, uh, what I'm calling the, the, the scientific researcher, the person who can discover, make new discoveries. So these four fantasies, and um, we'll come to the fourth one shortly, um, they overlap. I think I mentioned this the other day. It's a matter of emphasis and uh, what's dominant for you, for me, what's dominant at different times, do we have flexibility with them? Or am I just stuck? I can only look this way, I can only fantasize this way. Um, Is there flexibility? And the fourth is is what we're calling the artist fantasy. And this... um, this is also quite different. So you might ask, um, what is art for? Is it, is it for the end of suffering? I mean, some art is, clearly. Uh, politically motivated art with a message or this or that. Not necessarily. And even the scientific researcher fantasy may not be for the end of suffering. Or even the reduction of suffering might just be an interest in mystical states, an interest in consciousness, an interest in, in experience, an interest in dependent arising that's not motivated so much by wanting to end suffering. So what's art for? And who can answer that question? Who is to say what art is for? Is the impulse for art... Uh, so deep in the human being, in in humanity, let's say, because it's not in some people, obviously, but um, in humanity, that it can't be contained by a certain statement of uh, purpose. What, too, we might ask, is the artist's relationship with tradition. Most artists, and these are most artists that would, you know, one would, 
take seriously, let's say. Um, you know, again, you, you wouldn't say a person, if an artist is, let's say, a painter, I only paint like Michelangelo. Anything after Michelangelo is rubbish. And I'm trying to just uh, replicate um, Michelangelo's, uh, maybe not his exact paintings, or maybe even his exact paintings, uh, replicate Michelangelo's style. Um, that That's, you know, person's free to say that, of course, um, but it's a little, uh, you know, it sounds limiting. If, if an artist said that, it would sound quite li- uh, a limited view. On, on, uh, on the other hand, uh, an artist is probably not going to be ignorant of, say, the tradition of painting, if they're a painter, uh, of Michelangelo and um, what came after, and uh, the Impressionists and Cezanne and Picasso, you know, etc., etc., abstract expressionist, whatever. Um, there's going to be uh, maybe in the training a learning to replicate the tradition, and maybe um, a, a dialogue with the tradition, maybe a fighting of the tradition, maybe a trashing of the tradition. Um, But if if an artist was either ignorant of the tradition or only wanted to paint, like let's say Michelangelo, um, we we would be a little dubious about uh, what their depth or capacity or power or fertility as an artist um, was is. Um, so what is it, or what might it be, to have a fantasy of self and path that we might call artistic? leave that question fairly open for now. I think it was, if I remember correctly, I think it was in the talk called In Praise of Restlessness um, some years ago where I first uh, uh, discussed or broached this radically, possibility of a radically different conception of the path uh, and of the self on that path, a vision, a, a fantasy of of the path as art and the practitioner as artist um, in, in as a quite a, a radically different way than just the sense of um, a matter of technique. <clears throat> and in the two talks that came before that in a three-part series, things Questioning Awakening and Buddhism Beyond Modernism tried to um, poke holes or, or uh, expose um, gaps in the, the cages and the constructions of belief and view uh, that, that uh, prevent such a vision of the path, such a fantasy of the path. Um, so there's, uh, if you like, providing the groundwork for such a fantasy, actually elbowing the room for uh, for that kind of fantasy uh, as a possibility, and certainly in the um, again, if I remember, in the last retreat, uh, the reenchanting the cosmos, the poetry of perception, and talking about the art of perception, all that again, trying to support this possibility of that kind of fantasy. Maybe just to point out one. Uh, 
extra thing about the artist fantasy that, in a way, and you can see how a lot of this is actually not so simple as it might at first sound. Um, in a way, the fantasy artist has another further level to it where one, uh, or the artist, if you like, whether it's the artist as Dharma practitioner, <coughs> soul maker, or artist as painter or sculptor or what, whatever it is, musician, um, senses or imagines that their discoveries and creations are participations, are participating in, if you like, the divine creation, the divine creativity, the, the art of the divine, of the Buddha nature, of, the, of, of, of God, of the daemons, the, the, etc. Um, and our discoveries and creations, their discoveries and creations are participating in that divine movement, divine outpouring, divine discovery and creation of new logos, etc. Uh, so there's this kind of whole other level of a deeper sense, if you like, of participation, that the, the art uh, that one is involved in in one's life is actually... Uh, a participation in the divine art. Now, I mean more by that sense and by that fantasy, um, I mean more op- by it than just saying uh, the sense was people often report, I was just going with the flow or I uh, uh, just got out of the way and the, art, the, the poem just wrote itself or um, the painting just painted itself, etc., this uh, vision that I'm talking about, um, it it may uh, involve a lot of struggling, a lot of um, sketching, working out, trial and error, thinking, planning. It's not uh, it's not you know to be mistaken for the sort of um, just let it all flow and try not to think sort of uh, idea of things. <clears throat> Now you you could also have that sense of um, a, a deeper level of participation in the divine that one's one's uh, say one's artistic process, one's discoveries and creations as part of the are 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 participating in in the divine uh, creation and art. Uh, one could also have something similar with the researcher fantasy that the the creations and discoveries of of new uh, new observations, but also new new uh, ideas, new logos, new frameworks, new conceptions of things. That this also could be sensed, seen, felt, um, fantasied as participating again in the sort of, if you like, the becoming of God, the the the, the evolution of uh, the divine, the Buddha nature, etc. So just pointing out a whole other level of possibility here in some of these fantasies. And in a way that uh, makes me want to reiterate this point that, that there's a lot of overlap between these fantasies. You see that idea of another level of participation could be in the uh, artist fantasy, could also be in the researcher fantasy, etc. could st- stretch it, perhaps involved in the, uh, the other two that we talked about. But again, to, to, to stress that these four fantasies that I'm laying out, 
you know, like like we talked about delineations, they can seem neat and separate, and we make it sound that way, but actually they overlap, and and they're not exhaustive. So they might uh, again, there might be other, quite possibly there are many other other fantasies, etc. Um, possible here for the way we <coughs> vision and imagine ourselves on the path and the path and what awakening is and the goal and the tradition, etc. Um, in a way, it's, uh, you know, to, in terms of their overlapping, it's <clears throat> partly dependent on the degree of um, scope uh, and the permission we give ourselves for each fantasy. So, for example, the researcher fantasy. Um, what, if I'm, if I feel, okay, that fantasy's around, but the question is, what what's the scope of the research that's allowed that I am given permission to uh, inquire into and research and question and carry out my investigations. So with each of these fantasies, you know, how much they overlap with others um, partly has to do with that, the scope and permission. So for example, um, you know, you hear <coughs> me teach and perhaps other teachers really um, emphasizing, you know, play, experiment, find out, try things different ways, be, you know, have the permission to play and experiment, be creative. And so one might bring that to bear on, let's say, you, you have a, <clears throat> a certain emotion that's difficult one day, and you're playing and experimenting with, for example, the kinds of attention that you bring to bear on the experience of that emotion. Am I going to laser beam it right now with a, with a sort of very microscopic, intense, intensely energized attention? Am I going to kind of hold it in a kind of very soft, uh, um, uh, more spacious attention? Am I going to let the attention just touch it like a feather, very, very delicately, very softly? And, and in the moment, one is experimenting uh, with that kind of attention. And the question is, which is, which is the... the most helpful way of being with this right now. I don't know. I'm going to experiment. So in a way, that form of experimenting is the researcher right then. But it's quite limited because you can already hear that within that that um, experimenting research is nestled within the medical patient fantasy with what's going to reduce suffering, which, which is fine. There's no problem with that. But it might be that, uh, that, again, the scope and permission of how much I am allowed this, uh, the fantasy of a researcher, the self-view, a self-image of a researcher, is actually quite limited. So that other things might, act, might in fact be happening at times in my practice, but I don't dare to um, pick up on their ramifications or question them, um, etc. Um... And it's complex because one might feel and uh, that well, you know, I'm I'm still developing my chops, as they say in the music world. I'm still developing my understanding. I'm still developing my capacity to do these basic things, like play with the kinds of attention I give difficult emotions, play with the energy body, learn different emptiness practices, find my way around the imaginal and all this new language, etc. And so, you know, quite rightly, one doesn't start researching. Uh, you know, in full depth until one has uh, been, you know, had a certain amount of training, etc. And and also, you know, uh, perhaps the, the, the table is a little cleared in terms of one's not too overcome with other difficulties, etc. 
So there's, you know, there's a place for all this, but, but sometimes we just do not give ourselves permission uh, to expand the scope of, of, let's say, the researcher fantasies and to dare to question. <clears throat> or to, and then and then we may not even notice certain things that are perhaps worth questioning, or might open up a whole new area of investigation, some new discoveries, etc. Just because we haven't given ourselves that, that haven't given that self-image, that self-fantasy, and the relationship with the, the path <clears throat> and awakening, we haven't given it enough permission or scope. So there's. Overlap, they're not exhaustive. And also, uh, to reiterate, you know, all four of these that I'm laying out um, are valid. They're all lovely, you know, and, and wonderful. I'm not wanting to imply any kind of hierarchy. First you do this, and then you move to that. But if you're really, really good, then you have this one. Um, the question is, what is, if you like, authentic to you? What way of fantasizing self-path, awakening, and tradition is authentic to you? And, you know, that's a different question, just like, oh, the artist or whatever, that sounds pretty cool, I think I'll go for that one, because it's kind of, you know, it sounds kind of more interesting, uh, or rarer, or whatever. You know, that's, that's it. we're asking, what's authentic to you? And that's not necessarily an easy question. I'll come back to that in a second. Um can also point out here something I just alluded to a few moments ago, that we can be so used to a certain uh, mode of relating to and seeing and fantasizing self on the path in relationship to the goal. Um, For example, the medical patient fantasy or the religious fantasy, so used to a certain fantasy that actually very quickly any... Um, venturing out or opening up to another fantasy quickly gets sort of shrunk back down and put in in the sort of ha- fa- in the box of the f- habitual fantasy again. So, for example, um, uh, maybe I see that um, I've been in the religious fantasy <clears throat> and I've got this idea of I'm trying to can duplicate or discover for myself this awakening that I hear this and that teacher talk about and they talk about maybe different levels and, and I wonder where am I, etc. And, and, and what happens is that fancy easily, as I said, squeezes into a kind of ego measurement and then um, maybe I hear about these different ways of fantasizing self and the path and awakening and I let go of that whole uh, religious fantasy model and moving towards some awakening which someone else is talking about that's um, supposed to be fantastic, etc. And I just kind of let go of that. And when I let go um, out of the confines of that uh, religious fantasy and everything that it seems to imply or it, it all the baggage that it brings with it. When I let go, I realize, oh, that's better. I feel I can breathe now. And there's, there's the, you know, the letting go of that whole structure of self-measurement, etc. And, and lo and behold, with that, there's less suffering. I feel unburdened of a kind of suffering because there's less of this um, ego measurement. Where am I? Am I there yet? Why am I not there yet? Why do other people seem to have got it and I don't seem to have got it? And etc., or I'm going too slowly, or whatever it is. 
um, I let go, there's less suffering, and then very quickly I relate to the whole idea that we're talking about with different fantasies back in the frame of like, oh, oh, it's good, so when I let go of that one, I have less suffering. So which of these will bring less suffering? Right there, I'm back in the medical patient fantasy. I'm thinking in terms of less suffering. Now, there's nothing wrong, wrong with that. It's perfectly valid. It's just the question is, A, is it conscious? And B, is it authentic? Is it, if you like, the most soul-making? You know, what, what are we actually steering towards? And what's possible here? Um, because in what I just d- described, as, as I said, we just, I've just found my way kind of probably, uh, probably not that consciously even, um, back into the medical patient fantasy with the, with the logos, with the view and conception of it's about uh, less suffering and that's what matters most. <clears throat> so it's tricky all this. Um, you know, I'd, I'd love to sort of just say something and here's these four and it's very simple it's very cut and dry and hey presto uh, but you can just see how much um, things overlap uh, there's other possibilities it's, it's really not that simple you know when Jung um, introduced the idea of the archetypes in his, in his um, kind of way of thinking about things he insisted on people often don't realize this but he insisted on um, you don't ever get a kind of pure archetype. Arch- archetypes, if you like, they're, uh, what was his word there, always um, in, his word was contamination, they're always contaminated, they're always mixed, uh, was really his word, with other archetypes. You never get a single archetype on its own. Um, again, here, you never get a single fantasy on its own. It's it's variable, it fluctuates, it depends on how we're relating, it moves in time, it moves depending on all kinds of conditions, and they're mixed. You have, you have uh, multiple things going on at the same time, multiple fantasies even going on at the same time in different kind of mixtures uh, and emphases. And then this word authentic is also kind of a, you know, not so simple word. Um, when I say it's important, uh, which fantasy or what fantasy better, what fantasy, uh, because it might not be just these four, it might be something outside of these four, which is authentic to you? Now that could mean, um, which is the fantasy of the path that's kind of given to or for your soul, so to speak? What are you called to? Uh, what is the, um, what is your, uh, the impression, the fantasy that is uh, summoning you, if you like. Already, that question, putting the question that way implies already a certain fantasy and a certain concept or logos of autonomy, as if the soul has a certain calling in a certain direction, has a certain archetypal influence, etc., uh, that's kind of given to us and waiting to be discovered and either we're authentic to that or we're not we're in it or out of it or we're in it to a certain extent or in some situations or not and, and not others more or less I'm not, I'm not saying it's a bad I, I think it's a very powerful idea but but uh, contrast that with the, the possibility that I would somehow like to, to hold as well that we can experiment and try different fantasies. In this case, we can try different fantasies of the self on the path 
and, and fantasies of the path and of awakening and of uh, self in relation to tradition. We can experiment. We can create our own or discover slash create, as we said before, uh, new fantasies for ourselves. Try, try on different ones. So, and um, see which is the most soul-making, so to speak. So this word authentic might replace which is the most soul-making, which we can either kind of feel into and sense what's calling us, or we can play with things and experiment and find out and try different ones on. I would like to hold both of those fantasies of the approach to soul making in relationship to these fantasies I would like to keep both of them open but however we relate to that uh, movement that question um, as as I said we need fantasy we need a fantasy of the path for there to be eros we need fantasy and if we love the path, and if we love uh, practice, and that everything uh, uh, that's involved in that, or a lot of what's involved in that, if there is love, where there is love, there is fantasy. There's a fantasy operating. Yeah. But to be in love with the path, and to have an erotic relationship with path, <coughs> uh, we need fantasy, we need rich, fecund, uh, beautiful, uh, fantasy operating. So this is this is um, as I, said, I, w- I wish. Uh, I just wish. Can I not just say something simple? <laughs> that would be that. But you know, you start to go into things more, and you start to realize that it's not so simple. It's not so simple. So just drawing attention to some of the complexity um, of uh, of what we're presenting here. Uh, without hopefully overburdening it with so much complexity that it becomes just utterly confusing and a kind of thicket. But to pretend that it's so simple would also not be very helpful because very soon you would discover as you as you experiment and inquired into these ideas that actually it's not so simple. And can you also hear uh, that there are many levels of this idea of participation involved in what we're talking about? Many levels of this idea, for me, of a very profound idea of, of the idea of participation, participating in, uh, in the divine, if you like, participating in the Buddha nature, however you want to put it. So in this case, um, we participate in the creation, in the creating of what awakening is. We participate in the creating, or creating slash discovering of what awakening is. Which is a different idea than there is something called awakening, sort of there and waiting as a possibility. And you either um, uh, have it or don't have it, are it or are not awakened or you're at a certain stage of awakening you're at the second stage or or whatever that's the usual notion what is a different a radically different notion we participate in the very creation of what awakening is and can be 
usually when we hear something like that, we tend to think, well, if I'm creating it, it must be worthless. It's not real. The only real, the only uh, uh, worthwhile thing or worthy thing is something that exists independent of um, uh, my, my creation of it. Don't know. Can you get a sense of a whole kind of other level of ideation here? To me, um, a whole other level of beauty of an idea or profundity of an idea that we actually participate in the creation and possibly the delineation, etc., of what awakening is. So, going back to these four, um, these four possible fantasies, I really, what I really want to do is just open up, um, if you like, a basic notion here, a very basic notion about um, fantasy with respect to the path. Sorry, with respect to uh, awakening and the fantasies of the self on the path to awakening and in relationship to tradition. Just that as a as a really basic notion and just, just kind of waking up to that fact, if you like, that we fantasize um, in, in, in relation to all that. And then it's not a bad thing, it's an important thing. Um, and so, so to understand this, understand what uh, what other possibilities might be there, and if you like to, to what would like to somehow stimulate um, your inquiry into all this, and that's important to me. Um, the, the the you know I said at the begin- beginning of this talk, you know there. To me, this is this is actually very significant, or potentially, it's extremely significant. What we're talking about, this fantasy of the self, how this, how we fantasize the self on the path to awakening, and all that constellation of fantasy there, it's potentially extremely significant and far-reaching. Um, but it's only potentially significant if we don't kind of find our way into those ideas and those fantasies and have some something move there uh, if we don't work this material and this inquiry for ourselves then the significance and the ramifications of it and the effects of it only remain potential they don't actualize so I wonder if it's possible for me to um, throw out some lines of inquiry for you to ponder, to take away, to take into your heart and soul and uh, let them do their work or work on them. Um, on the cushion, away from the cushion, in your life. Uh, ho- hopefully we can so plant some seeds here. So, uh, let's see how this is going to work. If I say there are four, four big questions... Uh, for for big sort of lines of inquiry, that's a better threads of inquiry if we if we say it like that. And the first one um, has actually lo- lots of uh, parts to it uh, or, or elements to it, um, so it's quite rich. Uh, I think this is all quite rich, in fact. Um, but let me let me just 
offer these threads of inquiry and of course you may find your own threads of inquiry and that's part of the whole creativity of this process isn't it that's part of the uh, in fact it's part of the fantasies that we were talking about some of the fantasies that we're talking about but so in a way what's necessary for all this is and this is the first kind of level of inquiry the first strand of inquiry is do you do I, do you recognize where and when there is a fantasy uh, operating and alive of the self, of the path, the self on the path towards awakening uh, and, and tradition. So a whole fantasy constellation of self, path, awakening and tradition. Do you recognize where and when that is alive and fertile and um, inspiring and informing and uh, motivating and uh, doing its soul work. Do you recognize in contrast where what is dominant is, where and when what is dominant is a more of an ego measuring relationship with the, con- the, the constellation of self, path, awakening and tradition? When is it fantasy and soul-making and fertile? And when is it more an ego-measuring that has got the upper hand? And where is it none? It's just there's neither a fantasy nor a particularly ego-measurement lens going on. It's just nothing much going on. So the first kind of, if you like, the first place of entry is just, am I even aware of the difference? Can I tell the difference? What does that require? What kind of looking? You know, fantasies can be subtle, and the kind of fantasies that I'm talking about are indeed very, very subtle. Um, not always, but often. And perhaps it's best if they are quite subtle. They function as kind of um, uh, background uh, uh, colorers and uh, inspirers and um, givers of beauty. So they can be quite subtle, which makes them sometimes difficult to, to notice. Um, but as I said, where there's love, where there's eros, it implies fantasy. And sometimes what's happened is, because of the ego measurement coming in, a fantasy has just been squashed, or perhaps temporarily, perhaps in a certain area, it's just been squashed. Or there's a certain uh, uh, area of practice or direction or whatever where fantasy... Um, has not yet arisen. Okay. So that's the first kind of, if you like, platform uh, or stage is just can I recognize where and when there's fancy in contrast, where and when there's ego measurement, and where and when there's nothing at all? Neither. to nuance that a little bit, it might also be that in looking back over your years of practice and involvement in <coughs> Dharma or other, other spiritual practices or whatever, that you recognize that there are different periods, that at different periods in your history of practice or different periods in your life, your the fantasies that were dominant, let's say, or operating, the fantasies that were in play, that's a good way of putting it, the fantasies that were in play were, were different at different times uh, and for all, all different reasons. 
So, so it might be that in kind of reflecting on all this, or feeling into it, or seeing if you can notice the colors and effects of fantasy and the influences of that, or their absences, that uh, they're markedly different at different periods and stages in your practice and in your life. Okay, let's add a couple more strands to this uh, inquiry. Um, it's important, I think, to see that um, fantasies that we have, let's introduce one more element of our constellation of self, path, awakening, and tradition, and that is fantasies of others. Images and fantasies of others. So, for example, the Buddha, we could say, has to do with tradition, or other teachers that uh, are mean, uh, mean a lot to us, uh, that we have a heart, heart connection with, a soul connection with. So there's fantasy involved there. They may be alive, they may be dead, we may know them only through books, we may know them quite well, etc. But just to, to really recognize this is this is important to recognize that all this included in the constellation of images and fantasies in order for it to be fertile there's going to have to be some fantasy of others buddha uh, sangha of the past teachers sangha of the present friends etc co co farers uh, on the way fellow farers on the way etc this is again this has to be okay it's part of how the soul works. It's part of how soul-making works. And, you know, it's immature not to realize it. Um, it's immature to try and get rid of it. To me, what's psychologically mature um, is to recognize it and get, allow it its depth and function, recognizing image as image as well. So including that, but the, the particular nuance I want to open up right now is not so much that one, but actually um, in relation to different areas of practice. Because it might be that different, as I mentioned, different areas or different practices or strands of practice, you actually have quite different fantasies operating in in those different directions or er- or domains of practice, different whole fantasy constellation of self, self, uh, others, path, awakening, and tradition. So, if I ask you, um, in relation to five different areas of practice or directions or strands of practice, possible strands of practice, um, to reflect on the what the what the what tends to be the kind of dominant fantasy or fantasies in those directions or in those domains. So, for example, the first of these five, we could ask, how, what do you notice is for you, if you like, the common or dominant fantasy uh, of this constellation, self, <coughs> other, or teacher, or self, other, path, goal, and tradition in relationship with deep emptiness practice or deep emptiness practices that's the first of the five how do you tend to what kind of relationship of view do you tend to get into in relationship to the whole area and direction and domain of deep emptiness practice could be 
some people say, oh, when I realize deep emptiness, I will end rebirth, I won't be reborn again, uh, etc. Could, could be that uh, idea um, is involved. Could be, and probably what's maybe very common, is that um, uh, when I realize, or if I realize uh, deep emptiness, then I will end suffering, I won't suffer anymore, or I will significantly, at least significantly, reduce my suffering. And that would be very understandable if that was uh, uh, that, that idea was there. As part of the fantasy, as part of the logos, and as part of the fantasy involved. But let's see if we can really open this up and bring in a kind of openness uh, of of view and assumption, also a kind of honesty here, and and ask, is that is ending rebirth or is ending suffering or significantly reducing your suffering? Is that what you most want? What you really most want? What you really most love? What you really most care about? Is that what you feel called to? You know, it it, it may well be. Or it might not be, or it might be of some importance, but actually there's other things that are more important. So what I'm really interested in here, again, is this authenticity, opening up this uh, territory of inquiry. And there might be other elements that come in uh, that are important for you. Perhaps there's something about the tradition. And I love hearing the Heart Sutra. I love those kind of... um, enigmatic sounding mystical quotes uh, that go back thousands of years and when I'm uh, engaged in emptiness practice or reading about it or hearing about it I somehow feel connected with that tradition and it does something and just to recognize this is part this is a, a thread of, of the fantasy that's alive for me and important or it may it may be uh, that, that that person just says yeah well it's, it's not so much all of that, not even so much that, that I really hope to end suffering. I just kind of enjoy it. I enjoy playing in those ways. I enjoy what that whole framework of moving deeper into emptiness and the understanding of that and the, and the practices involved. I just enjoying, I enjoy what it opens up in my perception and my conception and my assumptions. And I, I enjoy the way it supports a kind of liberation of ways of looking that all these other ways of looking become available, and all these practices, and there's a kind of beauty and art in them. Which fantasy would that be uh, similar to if in our framework of four possible fantasies? Or again, it might be that in relation to the whole deep emptiness trajectory, um, uh, you it's just not alive for you yet. Um, uh, or or it might be that it... That it you know, very often gets squashed. There may be a love, there may be a fancy, but that fancy often gets squashed into a kind of ego measurement thing, and it gets too tight. Too what? Realist? Lacking in soul-making? <clears throat> that would be the first one for you to kind of reflect on, ponder, see what comes to you, see if you can feel into... The second uh, area or direction of practice would be imaginal practice. And right away we can, for me at least, point out a distinction there. That to me, imaginal, I'm not sure imaginal practice has a, has a goal, has a final arriving point. 
with emptiness practice, I suppose that, at least in the way I would think about it, you, you can kind of reach a final arriving point. Right, you could kind of say, how much of the time am I able to dwell in in that um, in that realization of emptiness without getting kind of you know shifted out out of it temporarily or to some degree or whatever? But basically, um, it it might be one way of conceiving it is just once one has realized the emptiness of everything, then you know tick that box kind of thing. It's done. Whereas imaginal practice, at least in the way we're conceiving it, it doesn't have a goal. It's characterized by not having it. It's open-ended, as I said in several talks in the past. There's no end to soul-making. It might be, you know, if you're new to it in these words, and what is it that cosmopoiesis means again, and uh, what's the difference between just having an image, uh, using my imagination and imagining, you know, once you get, it might take a little while to get oriented to the kind of, the logos that we're setting up and the conceptual framework and some of the skills in, in practice and the sort of the technique of that, if you like. Um, but once that's there, it's just, it, it is without a goal. And then how does that fact that it doesn't have a goal, therefore it doesn't really... Uh, kind of scale of measurement can't really fit onto it as much as the ego might like to do that it, it doesn't really it won't stick it's got nothing to to grab onto unlike something like emptiness practice which can tend to sort of have depths and stages and uh, even though it's not formulaic there's a ten that you know you can kind of in a way you could measure where where one is on that on that scale of realization Imaginal practice, I'm not sure that that's at all possible. So, so the second area of practice, how do you, and, and the question that goes with it, how do you tend to fantasize that whole constellation, self, other, path, awakening, tradition, in relationship to um, imaginal practice? Okay, third area we could choose is uh, samadhi. In this whole, <coughs> you know, uh, traditionally at least, um, the the Buddha uh, pointed to eight eight sort of classical uh, stages of jhanas, four form jhanas and four formless jhanas. Beautiful exploration and trajectory there. Uh, how do you tend to view that? Or you might be just stuck in this this, this idea of, um, you know, nailing the mind to one thing, like the sensations of the breath coming in and out of the nostrils or the abdomen or whatever it is, and that's what samadhi <coughs> means to you. And then how do you, how does the self uh, fantasize itself in relationship to samadhi practice? You understand? Partly depends on what I consider samadhi practice is, of course, but um, but still, it's it's something I see so much how that shrinks into a kind of ego measurement thing for people, so much. Which whether whether one views it in terms of jhanas or whether one views it as just as how focused am I on the breath or whatever it is, how in the moment am I continuously in the moment, whatever whatever kind of definition one is using on samadhi of samadhi. But the question again, can I can I be aware 
of what's operating for me there in that constellation. Self, path, goals, tradition, others. In, with respect to samadhi practice. Fourth one, with respect to metta and the brahmaharas. So a lot of this you might find out it's just the same with, with uh, all of it. I always tend to do this. But it might actually be quite different in relation to one area of practice and, and the other. That's why I'm going through these five. Metta and compassion may be uh, very alive for you. There may be a real beauty or fantasy there of what you're moving towards and what you're dedicated to and others who who inspire you in that, that way. Or again, it could be something that's contracted in a kind of ego measurement and self-judgment. Oh, I'm such a, a mean-hearted person. I can't, I'm so judgmental of this or that. I should be more kind. Or it just doesn't really register for you. Yeah. Matter. Never was much interested in that. And if it's a fantasy, you know, it's like, again, not just saying, oh yeah, there's a fantasy there, but it's like really, really sensing what the fantasy is, sensing its beauty, sensing its multidimensionality, sensing its um, fantastical nature and everything that's involved in that. But that would be the fourth. And the fifth, uh, for now at least, what about ethics? That's an interesting one. And the whole domain of ethical practice. I've talked about this in the past, uh, some years ago, but um, I think in the talk, Necessity of Fantasy was one place, but um, Buddhist ethics, at least, is is predicated and set up in for the sake of the reduction of suffering. Uh, actually, primarily for the reduction of one's own reduction of one's own suffering. Um, so we may be fantasizing Buddhist ethics and thinking of it, or the ethical practices that we do, just in terms of the medical patient model. Uh, and I know one one of my teachers would would think of it that way. So that's what you're doing. You're staying out of trouble. You're making sure your mind is not bothered and uh, hassled by regrets and worries about if I'm going to get found out for saying something or who uh, someone you know chasing me for this or that's not restless and worried about all that or again it might be with ethics that there's actually a much richer fantasy going on that something really moves you about perhaps purity and um, goodness and straightforwardness and openness and transparency and there's a, there's there's something uh, deeply touching and uh, beautiful and calling to the soul about uh, the ethical life, whatever that means and looks like to you. Or it may be that in relationship to ethics, um, what's what it's what the fantasy of ethic, the, the domain of ethical practice is really as inquiry. That now in a globalized world and and with such issues as climate change, etc., and a very different political systems and uh, possibilities for uh, destruction um, without destruction being consciously intended, uh, say through the environment or consumption or consumerism or whatever it is, uh, having global impacts, all kinds of other things, or ethics around sexuality. We live in a different age now. 
Um, that actually what's beautiful to you about ethics is as a, as a domain and an arena of inquiry. And that's the fantasy of the self in relationship to the path of ethics, etc. And that might, again, have certain people that are inspiring to you, uh, a certain sense of what you're moving towards, etc. Certain relationship to tradition. And what often happens, or in contrast, what often happens um, in relation to ethics is uh, one relates to it out of fear. I better keep these precepts, or I better keep these commandments, or whatever it is in a different tradition, or these these laws, or what, whatever. And we just follow authority or what we've been told, kind of out of fear. Or, again, it might just be it's just... Actually, ethics, and, and I think this is the case for, for uh, quite a few people, it's just not interesting. There's a lot more kind of interesting stuff in Buddhist, and so it's just not an area that, that the fantasy life has kind of enriched and made fertile and made beautiful. It's just, yeah, well, I'll probably keep the five precepts, but it's not, it's not really alive, imaginally. So there's five, that, that may help uh, this inquiry into this whole area of fantasizing uh, the self on the path in relationship to the goal and tradition and others. Um, there's five kinds of strands of practice. But I'm just offering possibilities for investigation so that, so that you can kind of till this soil and make it fertile in, relation, in relationship to this whole <coughs> imaginal dynamic and constellation around self and path. So all that was kind of the first area. It was really about recognizing and inquiring where and when fantasy is operating, where it's more ego measurement, where there's just nothing operating particularly. Different periods, different um, arenas of practice or directions of practice, etc. Second um, possibility of inquiry uh, to add to that is um, could you play with could you uh, take for a spin, so to speak, a test drive, uh, these four fantasies, uh, separately, perhaps at first, um, and try them on. Uh, Experiment with them. Imagine your way into them. Imagine relating to the path from, say, the um, researcher fantasy, or whatever it is. Um, Think your way into them. So just as a kind of um, experiment in creative inquiry, as a way of um, extending and loosening up the soul and the uh, soul-making process there. Again, part of why I'm saying all this is we get, it's so easy for us to get kind of um, tunnel vision, but also uh, just stuck on a railroad track uh, without, uh, without the ability to kind of steer ourselves in any direction, experiment, be creative and move things and create more space and more possibility there. So could you, just in your imagination, um, or even in actual practice, try on uh, these four fantasies that I've been talked uh, outlining, the medical patient, the religious, the researcher, and the artist, and play with them and think, think about them and how, how, what that would mean and what it would look like and what it would feel like and what it would imply. Yeah. So that might be that might be fun. I, I think it would probably uh, be infor- informative to do that. Okay. Third um, 
kind of inquiry here is really um, what we mentioned before. What fantasy or fantasies work for you? Uh, that don't have to, doesn't have to be uh, one of these four that I've outlined. Uh, could could be something else. Uh, you come up with your own, or it, it it chooses you, if you like, if we use a certain language, um, giving soul more intelligence or autonomy. This fantasy chooses you, calls you. Well, again, this word, what's authentic to you? What works for you? Um... How do I recognize that? Yeah. Again, so that presupposes, I said, what I said right at the beginning of the, this uh, outlining the inquiries. It's, it's um, how do I even, can I even recognize where a fantasy is alive and fertile and offering, irrigating the soil, inflaming the soul, uh, in, in giving fire, giving beauty, giving depth, giving richness, stimulus. Can I even recognize that compared to its absence or compared to the constriction of a more ego measurement uh, relationship? But what works for you? What's authentic? What's fertile? And then last sort of uh, (coughs) question or inquiry uh, is how do you feel about this idea or possibility of the path being open-ended. How do you feel about the, the idea or possibility of the path being open? And we tend uh, to be handed and to uh, receive from the tradition a sense of the path has an end. A person might think, well, yeah, but I'm never going to reach that end. Other people can um, but it's quite can be possibly quite a different thing to actually view the path itself is potentially open-ended because of the possibilities that we've been talking about and how do, how, does, how do you feel in relation to an open-ended path and how does that might that idea or that possibility affect the possibilities of then how you fantasize um, self in relation to such a path and others and, and tradition, etc. That would be another way in, possibly, to all this. But I, I hope that one one way or another you can um, as I said, work this soil a little bit. It doesn't have to be uh, immediately, but but maybe carving out a little time or a little intention to uh, setting up the intention to, as I say, till the soil, work the soil, um, turn it to, 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 to bring these questions into the soul, these possibilities into the soul. I really want to open up, as I said, um, to me it's quite a basic notion, really potentially significant, something to understand here, something to stretch the soul a little bit uh, through inquiring into it, into this area. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.